You guys have a seat. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter one here in a moment, so I'll give you a head start to get there. Uh, January, uh, we'll we'll click over three complete years with me as your pastor. Uh, we're beginning our fourth year, which seems absolutely crazy uh, that we started here in January of 2020. And in all the Sundays that I've preached here, I've never almost fallen coming up the steps. Um, but for everybody in this area right here uh, that was scared that I had died, um, that's what happened. Almost fell coming up the steps. Uh, so that's that. But um, but it's it's an exciting uh, exciting thing. So uh, man, we are we are in this uh, this little short term series. We're about to get into some uh, get into Christmas celebration. Do some uh, do an Advent celebration sermon series. You'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks. But uh, we may have to come back to this series of drifting because God's just opened uh, my heart and mind. To just some things that I'd like to address as well that we just didn't have time to do. So, um, but I told you guys last week that this series called "Drifting: A Slowly A Slow Change in What We Believe" started. God placed it in my heart uh, because of a study that I read uh, by Lifeway Christian Resources, where they they were they were trying to gauge the the Christian uh, beliefs, the the theological stance and and shift that was happening in America. And so, when you look at that study, uh, one of the things that people yeah they start losing their minds over is the fact that a, a decreased amount of Americans now believe in God and attend church. And and yes, that's alarming. It should should set off bells in our head, but that was those were not the stats that just wrecked me. It was the ones where we were where that were seeing a shift even within the church. Not outside the walls of the church, but we are seeing a shift in theological, the theological meaning just the study of God. We're seeing a shift in what we believe in the church towards an unbiblical idea. And, and so that's what's most scary to me. I want to show you one slide that we're going to address today as we talk about Jesus. Um, one of the statements that was on the survey was Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So that's a statement that's on there, and you have to agree or disagree with that statement with five gradients of whatever bubbles to check okay and so um in 2020 you can see uh that only 30 percent uh agreed with that statement but here's what you need to know that's not a true statement okay so jesus was a great teacher but he was also god that's what we're going to talk about today so in 2020 30 percent of people agree with that in 2022, just two years later, the studies show that 43% of people agreed with that statement, that Jesus is not God. And this is not outside the walls of the church. These are those who claim to be evangelical Christians. 43%. That's not good. Okay. Now, here's what some of you don't know if you're not on Facebook because I couldn't figure out another way to do it. But I was able to actually share uh, through our Facebook group, uh, Lindsay Lane East Facebook group, I was able to share this study in like a little confined thing where I could see results just from the people from our own church, which was super cool. And I'm proud to say uh, that only 17% of people didn't mark the the orange. Like So 83% of our people said we strongly disagree with this, but there were 17% of us within our church who said something other than strongly disagree with the statement. So there's another question that was asked um, that we didn't score as well on. Arguably, the statement is confusing. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. But uh, this, uh, another statement that was on the study was, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, it's gotten me up until the f- 
created by God part, okay? Um, Jesus is the first and greatest being. Sure, I can get there. But when we throw in the words created by God, what we're going to see today is that's completely not true. And so we should have disagreed with this statement. However, only 52% of our church strongly disagreed with that statement. Now, maybe it was because we misunderstood the question. But 48% of people were spread across the other four options. And so that's why I'm going to stand before you today and we're going to move from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end and talk about how we can be confident from God's Word that Jesus is God. So we're going to pose this question. We're going to look at more in depth this question, who is Jesus? So I'm going to start off uh, by just kind of uh, reading what's, a really sum up version of who Jesus is, John 1, 1 through 3. I'm going to read this, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come back and talk about this some more. But John 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him and apart from Him. Not one thing was created that has been created. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, God. We thank you for the illumination of our hearts and minds to understand your word. And so, God, I pray that today, as we look at a whole lot of passages and a whole lot of ideas, God, that you would just bring clarity to our hearts and minds. And God, as the the rest of the Christian world seems to be leaning away uh, from just orthodox Christian beliefs, God, may Lindsay Lanise be a place that's, God, not moving with the current, but founded and sure on the foundation of Jesus Christ um, and the truths from your word. And so, God, today, help us to understand these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So John 1, 1 through 3 is one of those verses where we ask the question, who is Jesus? We can jump there real quick, get our answer, and we can go home. So let's do that real quick, all right? Because I know y'all want to get out of here in five minutes. So that's what we're going to do. Just kidding. All right. Um, but so you jump into this, you jump into John 1 1 real quick. Uh, you find the answer to this question Who is Jesus? John is not using Jesus' name here. Okay. He's using this term, the Word. Okay. But by verse 14, if you're reading John 1, by the time it gets to verse 14, it is very clear who the Word is. It's Jesus. Okay. And so it's talking about Jesus. So John is saying two things about Jesus here. First off, he's saying he's eternal. We find out that he was with God in the beginning of all creation. What John does not say is that in the beginning, God created Jesus. God created the Son. It doesn't say that. It says that the Son of God was with God in the beginning. He is eternal. He was not created by God. He is eternal. And the second thing that John tells us in the text is that he is God. John says it simply. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so I would sum up the question of who is Jesus. If I were trying to put a statement that we could memorize, it would be this. Jesus is the eternal Son of God and is God himself. That's what the Word of God teaches us. So now we can all go home because we have an answer and invitation, and let's go grab coffee on your way out. Um, no, we're not going to do that. And here's why. This is what Christians have done for generations. We've gotten the theological truth that we need. We've implanted it into our brain, and we've moved on about our life with that in our mind. Now, the problem with that is, is we, we're not diving deep. For, ge- for generations, this is what we've done. We've heard of biblical truth. We've locked it away, but we've not investigated the depths. And guess what happens? Either 
You have to memorize some stats of your favorite team. So you know how your brain works? There's got to be space. So the, 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 the truth that you locked away has to be moved so that you can memorize passes, completed passes in 2019, whatever. You're, okay. I don't know about stats. All right. But like it has to have, or what happens more often than not when people just lock away a biblical truth is they later will hear a more recent, well put together argument and will abandon the original truth that they once implanted in their mind for something lesser. This is what's happening in the Christian world today. From the culture around us, we're hearing answers that disagree with us and because our answer is not deep, it's easy to wipe away. Um, the first house we lived in... Uh, my wife hated the flower bed out front. It was kind of oddly shaped. And so she said, hey, you know what I like is just grass all the way up to the house. And I was like, let's do it. Like, less to weed eat around, right? And so, um, some, you know, what I learned is that some plants are easy to pull, aren't they? Because they're real surface. However, we had a some sort of tree bush thing. I don't know what it was. That sucker must have run under our house. And like to looped back around and went up in Tennessee somehow because like that that thing did not want to come up and it was crazy. Here's what I learned: if you're these biblical truths, if we don't understand the depths behind the answer, all there are is in your brain, and it's easy to wipe them away. It's easy to pull those things when the opportunity comes. However, if we will, as we're going to try to do today, dive deep into God's Word, look at several different reasons why we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, yet is also God Himself, then we'll have a deep-rooted tree. What was the thing? What was it? Huh? Hydrangea bush. Anyway. All right. So that's what it was. Uh, However, all right. So that's another question. That's another thing. So this is, we've got to start asking questions about what we believe. So we're going to ask some of those. The first thing is, if we're going to look at Jesus is the eternal Son of God and is God himself. When we go to the text, the first place I want to look is, what does the man say himself? Right? Like, what does Jesus say about himself? Does he say that he was God. That's where we got to start. And so the first point is this. If you're, ta- if you're a note taker, jot this down. Jesus claimed to be God. So several times in Jesus' ministry, he made claims that he and, he and God were one. That's the terms he used. That, that we are one. I and the Father are one. This is John 10, uh, verse 30 through 33. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. And it's not the only place he does it, but this is one. And what happens after that? Again, again, which is an important word to notice, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him. So this wasn't the first time they tried to kill him, but this is another time. Jesus replied to them, I've shown you many good works. I've done a lot of good things from the Father in front of you. So which one of them has led you to want to kill me today? And they say this, We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see, we can look at Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, and we can think about it like in some sort of ethereal way that they, they were united in purpose or they were united in some sort of, uh, you know, just ideal state. But what clearly those who were listening to Jesus talk, these Jews who were trying to kill him, what they took this to mean is that Jesus was claiming to be God. And if Jesus didn't mean that, what I would have said is, no, 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 that ain't what I meant. <laughs> But he doesn't. Jesus actually doubles down on it. 
Because after this, they try to he doubles down and they try to grab him and and kill him. So what we're seeing is that Jesus claims to be God, but as bold of a statement as it is to say I and the Father are one. It's not the most intense statement that Jesus makes in in his ministry. And if we're going to talk about Jesus' claims to be God, there's one that's unavoidable. It's one that goes far and above the others. It's the one that, like, if our Bibles could beam light from certain passages to point to their importance, this would be one of those that would just jump off the page at us, especially if we're good readers of the Old Testament, which is what i got to catch you up on, okay? So... To grasp the heaviness of what happens in John chapter 8, we've got to look back at Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, we've already been introduced to this guy named Moses. So at this point in the history of God's people, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And they're living there. Egypt is this huge mega power, and they've enslaved the uh, Israelites. But this guy named Moses, who was an Israelite who's being raised by the Egyptians, long story there, he gets frustrated, kills an uh, uh, Egyptian, and has to flee from the authorities. And he winds up in the rural area around Egypt, living as a shepherd. And Moses is herding sheep one day on a mountain that we later find out to be Mount Sinai. And when he says he's herding his sheep, he sees out of the corner of his eye a bush that has burst into flames, which would catch my attention. Uh, it would catch my attention. Um, so it's this spontaneous combustion that happens is, is, is not completely out of the ordinary, but it was enough to, to get his curiosity piqued. And so he walks over, and then the fire begins to speak to him. So if the spontaneous combustion wasn't enough, now it's starting to speak words. I'm listening now. Amen? All right. I'm listening too. And what we see is the, the voice from the fire identifies himself as the God of Israel. Now Moses is no doubt, as an Israelite, he's no doubt heard the stories that were passed down verbally from the previous generations about the promise of this this God who would give the Israelites land and he would set them up as a people. And then this God asked Moses to go back into Egypt and lead his people out of bondage. Now this was an answer to prayer from all the Israelites. This was an answer to prayer. It was an answer to prayer from Moses. Moses hated to see. That's why he killed the Egyptian. He hated to see his Israelite, his Israelite family going through such difficulty. However, Moses knows as good of a thing as this is, it's going to be an uphill battle. Because he's got to go back and gather some Israelites together. Y'all come here, y'all come here. God told me that we need to revolt against the largest empire in the known world right now and that he's going to get us safely home. Anybody else in? I'm going to ask some follow-ups, right? That's good. That's just good. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have some questions. And Moses, Moses knows that the Israelites are going to have questions. Exodus 3.13. We're finally back to the text. Moses asked God, So, Let's just say, I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. What if they ask me questions? What if they say, what's his name? What should I tell them? Like, I don't even know what to call you. And God's answer is this. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you are to say to your Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, God uses, I'm going to go nerdy for a moment, okay? If you hate the nerdy stuff that I do, just close your ears, okay? But God uses this word, this Hebrew word, that is completely unique to this point in the Bible. Never used again. Completely unique. 
And I'm going to do my best to pronounce it. This one's on live stream. Shoot. Okay. Echia. Asher Echia. That's the phrase he uses. I am that I am. I am who I am. And so this is a this is a, a statement of existence. It shows preeminence. He's saying, I am the source of all life. And he tells Moses to go to the Israelites and tell them that Echiah has sent me to you. Don't you love the Hebrew language? If I had to preach in Hebrew, y'all would be covered in spit, because it's a lot of a lot of hacking. Helps if you've got a sore throat. But what so that probably doesn't sound familiar. Like eh, yeah, that's you don't doesn't sound familiar. But what Moses does is he takes this first person statement, I am, and makes it a second person statement and says he is. So when Moses goes back to the people of Israel, he doesn't say I am has sent me to you. He actually says he is has sent me to you. You know what that Hebrew word is? Yahweh. This is the word Yahweh that we see all throughout the Bible. It's the word that, and actually Moses, as he's rewriting you know, the first five books of the Bible, as he's telling this story, he actually uses the word Yahweh as early as Genesis chapter 2. In our Bibles, if you're wanting to see it as you're reading the Old Testament, look for the word LORD in all caps. When the word LORD is in all caps, that's the word Yahweh. So by the time Jesus comes onto the scene during the height of the Roman Empire, so we're thousands of years after Moses, this interaction with God that Moses had is already written down on scrolls along with the entire Old Testament, and it's being studied by Jews just like Jesus. And Jesus, who's being, who is a great teacher of these scrolls, he knows them really well. He knows what the texts say. So one day Jesus is approached by some Jewish leaders who are trying to, they're trying to figure out who this guy is because they see some power in him. So this is the interaction. This is John 8. Now we're back in the New Testament, several thousand years later. The Jews responded to Jesus, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? So that's a... Anyway, that's a funny question. Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's a demon. Um, No, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. On the contrary, I honor my Father. Yet you're dishonoring me. I don't seek my own glory, though there is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said... Okay, now we know you have a demon. Because we know Abraham died, and so did the prophets. But you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you saying that you are greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? Are you saying you're greater than the prophets who are dead? Who are you claiming to be? You see their frustration with Jesus. They're like, dude, you're making some bold claims. You better bring it. Jesus says this. It's a long answer, but I'm just going to give you the last part. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, the Jews respond with the question you would say is, Dude, you ain't even 50 yet. Abraham lived however long ago. He lived a long time ago. And yet you're saying that, okay. Jesus said to them, Listen to this. Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's terrible grammar. Terrible grammar even in English. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. So whatever Jesus said here, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Whatever this weird grammatical thing he just said that seems weird to us was so 
infuriated those around him that they picked up stones again and went at him. So what is it about this statement? Jesus on one hand is simply saying, yeah, yeah, I've been around a lot longer than Abraham, which would be a weird statement for a man to make. But the word that he chooses to use, and it's not Hebrew, it's not echia, because Jesus, it's all written in Greek here. But Jesus is using a word, when he says, I am, it's a word that is absolutely slap dog loaded. What we call hyperlinks here at East. Hyperlinks are words that, that are glowing on the page to us. We see them and go, oh, I've heard that word before. What, is that, what does that come from? You see, Jesus wasn't just saying, dude, I've been around forever. I'm eternal. He was saying, I am the I am. And their response was they tried to stone him. They got it. They heard him right. That Jesus didn't have to clarify what he meant by it. Jesus makes the statement that I am, I am. I am the one that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am the one who's led God's people out of Egypt. I am the one who called Abraham to follow me so many years ago. I am God. So Jesus, from his own mouth, in at least two occasions, and I could have pulled out more, claims to be God. But it's one thing to claim to be God. It's another one to be able to convince other people that you're God. Amen? Because I could start walking around and saying I'm God and every one of you would leave the church and I would be left here by myself because I would be crazy. But to be able to convince other people that He is God, that's the point number two. Jesus' followers call Him God. So we already looked at John chapter 1. Jesus said... Uh, there, Jesus is said to be God who created everything. Um, it also says he's with God. So we're starting to get this image of a God who exists in different persons, a singular God with a plural nature somehow. word we use for that is the word Trinity. God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. But that's another sermon for another day. But there are two main terms that Jesus is called by his followers uh, that identify him as God. And I want to show you both of them. First one of them is in a, in a passage of Scripture that we're about to be reading in a few weeks. Luke chapter 2. Um, Luke chapter 2, familiar Christmas passage. Right? It starts with the census and all that stuff, right? Um, so Luke chapter 2, uh, after Jesus is born, uh, an angel appears to some shepherds who are working in a field outside Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And in verse 11, we see this. The angel says, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, he says he is the Messiah or the Christ. Right? This is this was the this was a Hebrew idea that, that long ago God had promised that one day he was going to restore Israel to its place of prominence in the world, similar to the days of David. That was what they were expecting. But it's what is said after that that is much more unique. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is simply to say that he's God's chosen one. It doesn't mean he's God. But read what comes after that. That he is the Christ or the Messiah, the what? The Lord. Again, I had to look this up. I'm not smart, but it's the Greek word kurios. And it just means master. By the first century, this is a common word in Rome. So if you, were a, if you were a slave owner or you were a, just a heavy, a big boss or you were a teacher, people would call you curios. It was a common word, but it has a whole separate meaning to the Jews. By this point in the first century, most of the Jews don't speak English. Don't speak English. None of them spoke English. 
By this time, uh, by this point in history, a lot of the Jews don't speak Hebrew. Um, the, the scriptures are still read oftentimes in Hebrew, but a lot of the Jews don't speak it. What they do when they study the scriptures, they're actually reading a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And so when you go to, and we still have kind of like copies of copies of this, of this Greek text. And, and so what we, what we know is that in that Greek text is that the word Lord, that's all caps, the word Yahweh that we talked about, the name of God in the Old Testament. Guess what word in the Greek they put in for that word? Curios. So, for, for, for Luke, who wrote this, the gospel according to Luke, for him to say that this baby who was born in Bethlehem is the Lord, he's either saying one of two things. Either he's saying he's a master or he's God. Now, I'll, I'll let you argue within yourself whether... Luke would say this of a baby. Because I know in our culture today, babies do rule the house sometimes. Because they can absolutely uproot your life when you have a new baby. Uh, when a baby is born, they do kind of become the master. Because when they cry, guess what you do? You get your butt up out of bed and you go get them, you go rock them, right? Like, there's in a certain sense, but in this day, this would have been a crazy idea for Luke to say that a newborn is a master. So it seems that Luke is making a declaration not of who Jesus is or will become, a great teacher and master, but he's declaring who who Jesus is even in his infancy, the God of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh. You see, the term Lord becomes a common way to refer to Jesus by his followers. One of my favorite places to see that is Acts chapter 6 because it's intense. But uh, the, the disciples of Jesus are, are, have, have just shared the gospel with a group of people in Acts 16. And uh, they say to them, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Kyrios, Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. You see that there. And of course, they could just mean master because by this point, Jesus is, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a teacher of many people. But they're saying... Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. So let's see what they do. Let's see if the people that he's speaking to actually do this. And the owner, the person that they were speaking to brought them into his house. This is verse 34. He set a meal before the disciples and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Now, some critical thinking reading skills. What was different about those two verses I just read? Did you catch anything? What were they to believe in? Who were they to believe in? Okay, well, verse 31, what did it say? To believe in the Lord Jesus. And then at the end, it says that they did believe, but in who? God. Okay, so either Luke just, just wrote the wrong name, or he's making a statement about who Jesus is, that to believe in the Lord Jesus is to believe in God. To believe in one is to believe in the other because they are of the same essence. They are God. Paul picks this up as a later disciple who writes to Titus. Uh, verse 13, chapter 2. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't even bat around the idea that you might not read how I'm saying this. You might need to think about it some more. He says, Jesus is our great God. It seems pretty clear. 
Jesus' followers were confident that Jesus was God himself. He was not just a good teacher. So the statement on the survey, now even up to this point, and we're not even done yet, but to this point we know Jesus was a good teacher, but he was also God. So we see these declarations from Jesus, and we see this declaration from his disciples, but we also see a genuine commonality. All right, so I want to show you this. This is uh, point number three. Jesus is like God. So I had a teacher in school, uh, Miss Hastings. She taught uh, the upper English classes, uh, like junior and senior year. And um, so she also taught my dad. So she was kind of nearing the end of her career. And so uh, in 1976, she taught my shaggy-haired dad. And then in 2004, she taught me as a really lot more shaggy-headed than this smaller version of him so on day one you know she's reading the role awkwardly everybody's favorite day and she says michael haney my first name's michael and i said uh yes i go by heath she said you know joe and i said yes ma'am that's my dad she said thought so you look just like him right she could see the resemblance she she told me all the time she said i feel like i'm talking to joe right now because we had this but here's the deal day one she thought i looked like him by the end of the semester she knew beyond any shadow of a doubt because our personalities were so similar because she had she had spent a whole semester with me the way i acted the things i said the jokes i made that got me into trouble like all of that reminded her of joe now here's the deal when jesus begins to declare that he is god in one sense that's just a statement but what the disciples the disciples didn't say he was god because jesus said he was god the disciples said he was god because they saw it in him I saw it in them. There's several ways that Jesus proves through his ministry that he is God. I just want to give you the two biggest ones to me. I'm going to mention a few on the back end that you can go look up for yourself. But the first thing we've already talked about, but it's one of the most important ones, and that is that the Son is eternal. We saw it in John 1. We started with it. In the beginning was the Word, the Son of God, and he was with God and he was God. We saw it echoed in the I am statement, right? And Jesus is making the statement that I am eternal. And there's only one eternal being, and that is God. So if Jesus says he is eternal, then he must be God. The other one is this. The way that Jesus is like God is he is omnipresent. Omnipresent. Which is a fancy way of saying he's everywhere. That's what it means. Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens fans in the house? Three of us. All right, here we go. Y'all need to look it up. The squirrel going to get loose in this place if you don't. It's all inside jokes. Um, so the sun is everywhere. The sun is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, Psalm 139 is one of the clearest places that we get this idea that the Lord God is everywhere, that Yahweh is everywhere. Look at what it says, uh, Psalm 139, verse 5. You have encircled me, God. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live in the eastern horizon or settle in the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. You see, what the psalmist is saying is that there is no way to escape God because he is everywhere. Now notice what Jesus says during his ministry. Matthew 18, verse 20. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name. He's talking about a, a statement. Uh, it's actually a church discipline, correction, conflict resolution thing that's going on. But Jesus says, where two or three of my followers are gathered in my name, I am there among them. So where can that happen? That can happen everywhere. Where two, I mean, you could put in parentheses, where two or three are gathered anywhere on the earth together in my name, I am there among them. Jesus is making a declaration during His ministry that He is everywhere. Jesus is making this clear statement about His omnipresence. We could also look at His holiness, perfection. We could look at His omniscience, which means He knows everything. And we could look at His transcendence, in which he, He's above, thinking, seeing and thinking on a different plane than you and I ever dreamed of. But that would take... 30 more minutes, so we're going to move on. Now, one of the things that we do often, like we could end here and we could say, okay, we've looked at all the texts or a large majority of the texts that prove that Jesus is God. Now we can close it. Now our hydrangea bush is deeper and we've rooted it, but we've got one of the things that, man, I man, I did, especially when I was young and even as I get older, I struggle with this. You ever run across a passage of Scripture that shakes you a little bit because it seems to say something different than what you thought you believed? If you never have, just keep reading the Bible because it's going to pop up sometime. And what there's two safe, there's two things you can do there when you run across something that you go, huh? You can do what I did most of my life, go and just turn the page <laughs> and go on to the next thing, or we can wrestle with it. And so, if we're going to talk about, if we're going to have a clear idea that Jesus is God, we've got to look at the sticky places. We got to look at it. I'm just going to show you one. It's easy to look at places that align with what we believe, but we've got to look at places that seem to disagree and make sense of it. So I want to show you this one. And maybe it's weird to end on this, but this is what we're going to do. Number four, Jesus as the, I'm going to put air quotes in it, firstborn. Jesus as the firstborn. So this is a biblical idea that's spoken of multiple places in the New Testament. It's an unavoidable issue that we have to look at when thinking through this idea. Because if Jesus, as the Son of God, came into existence at some point after creation, then He's not eternal, right? By definition. And when we think of firstborn, that's what we think about. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15-17. He's the image of the invisible God, talking to Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the invisible and the invisible were thrones or demands or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's before all things and by Him all things hold together. You see this. Paul says that Jesus is the perfect image of God. And, and what he means by that is that what we know about God but can't see because He's a spirit, we get to see in the person of Jesus Christ because He's flesh. Isn't that cool? He's the image of the invisible God. God's perfection, God's holiness, God's omniscience, God's omnipotence, God, God's all these things that God is. We don't get to see that with our eyes because He's a spirit. But in Jesus, we get to witness it because He's a fleshly human. Humans got to exist in a time and see Jesus, God on earth. So, why does, it call Je- why do, why does Paul feel led by the Spirit to call Jesus the firstborn over all creation. Because when I read that, the, the thing that comes into my mind is that He has to come into existence at some point. He can't be eternal. 
But we just saw from the Bible that that's not true. So we've got to make sense of it. Another place that's very, very similar in language to this is Hebrews chapter 1. Sending you on a Bible drill today. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The author of Hebrews says this, In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him, the Son, heir of all things and made the universe through Him. So you see in the connections between Hebrews 1, 2, and uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, right? We have, uh, we have this, uh, this heir, uh, firstborn of all things, heir of all things, and that the universe is being made through the Son. But notice that Hebrews 1, 2 doesn't use the word firstborn. It uses the word heir. When you study those two words, especially in their ancient context, they mean the same thing. The firstborn was the heir. He was the one. If you had 14 kids, it didn't matter. The firstborn was the heir. He was the one who would inherit a majority, if not all, of daddy's stuff. And so for Jesus to be the son of God, the firstborn, he was also the heir. So not only was the entire universe made through the son, the son also stands to inherit all of creation like a firstborn son would. But look back at Colossians 1 with the language of, of firstborn because it triggers in our minds a birth that has to happen way back at creation. Replace it with the word heir. He's the image of the invisible God, the heir over all creation. You see, this... And this is not going to like click with all of you, maybe, because it's just a, it was a thing in my mind, and it, it, this helped me. And so some of you, if this is a struggle for you, if you studied firstborn stuff, and you're like, it makes me question, this was hugely helpful for me to recognize that Jesus doesn't, to, think, to see him as a firstborn, it means he had to come into existence at some point, but to think of him as an heir has nothing to do with him being born. He's the heir over all creation. So that's, if you're a note taker, you can write that down as point 4A, you know, firstborn as an heir. So we immediately jump to the physical part of the term firstborn and say, ah, the son must have been born. He can't be eternal. But the definition of firstborn has a much larger scope. But there's at least something else going on here because when we get to Colossians 1 verse 18, which is the next verse I read after 17, he is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might have... He might come to have first place in everything. So it doesn't say he's the firstborn over all creation here. What does it say? He's the firstborn from the dead. You see, Jesus was buried but didn't stay dead. He was raised up to new life. And this was about more than just his own resurrection, though. Jesus set a standard for those who would believe in him and follow him. Just as he died, so we too die in an old way of living our lives. I was trying to explain that to my, my children this week as we talked about salvation. That we have to die to our old way of living life. And just as Jesus was raised up, so we too are raised up to new life through the indwelling of God's Spirit in us. And just as Jesus returned to God's right hand, so we too, when I breathe my last, will be with the Lord forever at my death. You see, Jesus as the firstborn, it means that He's an heir, but it also means He's providing us a new way of life. He's the firstborn, the first, the first one to show us this new way of life. Now, all of this is important for us to understand. 
all of this from Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus showed us who he was. His disciples called him God. Then he showed us through his nature who he is. And now we're seeing even one of the sticky points of Jesus as the firstborn does not contradict what we're talking about. So when we think about who Jesus is, it's important to understand these things because we've got to not only strive to know what we believe. I could have preached the first five minutes and quit and we would have known what we believe, but it's important to know why we believe it. If you don't know why, then someone at some point, some snot-nosed nerd is going to come along and convince you of something else. It's going to pull that weed out of the garden and you're going to be stuck. So we know that Jesus is the Son of God, yet He is also God. We know this because Jesus said this of Himself. His followers said it about Him. We see it in His attributes. We know all this, and it changes our lives. 28 years ago, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and died on the cross for my sins, but is also God Himself, 28 years ago, my life was changed because of that truth. A year and a half ago, my daughter's life was changed because of that truth. And my crazy six-year-old boy is asking all kind of questions right now, and God, it's about to be to the point where that truth is going to change his life. You see, these truths matter because our theology fleshes itself out in what we do. What we believe affects what we do. Today, it's a different kind of message, but I hope it's been helpful for you. You may want to respond to this message by the way I have this week and the way I've done this morning and I'll do it during this last song is that I have an opportunity to worship Jesus in a more confident way, in a more full way because I'm understanding even more now, even as your pastor, studying this week was super helpful for me. And I can worship Jesus Christ in a more confident way today. Maybe some of you have been a little uncertain before today that Jesus was God. Maybe y'all were some of that 48% that didn't mark definitely disagree with this statement. Hopefully you feel more confident now that we've looked literally at most of the Bible to see these truths. But today you may also want to trust in this Jesus who's eternal, Son of God, yet also God. I would love to share with you about how you can do that. I've been getting a lot of practice with my six-year-old this week. (laughs) Lots of questions. You can't throw me a question. He ain't asked me. So if you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, I'll be at the back during this last song. Um, I'd love to talk with you. Worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing this last song. It's not an opportunity for you to start checking your phone, check the buck score. It's not what we're supposed to do. It's not what we're here for. This is an opportunity for you to wrestle with the truths that have been presented and begin to ask yourself, how am I going to live different based on what I just heard from God's Word? So you may want to come and pray at this altar. You just may want to worship right where you are, or you may want to come talk to me about a decision. But this is a time for us to wrestle with next steps. I'm going to say a prayer, and we'll stand and respond. Father God, we thank you, um, God, that in your word, we, uh, we, we're not left guessing um, who Jesus is. But God, it's clear. It is clear. And God, through your Spirit's help this week and today, God, you have made clear before the people of Lindsay Lane East that Jesus is not a human being who was a good teacher only. He is a human being who was a good teacher, but before he became a human, was eternally God himself. And God, I know that's about where my understanding ends. (laughs) 
I got to still have questions about how that works. God, I feel like a six-year-old sometimes thinking about that and trying to make sense of it. But God, I know, I know from your word that Jesus is who he said he was and I've witnessed it in my own life. And God, I pray that I'd be confident in the truth that you presented, God, because you've presented what you want us to know and that is enough to ground us and root us to survive the waves and winds that come our way. God, as the rest of the Christian world in America begins to drift towards a theology that doesn't align with your word, God, again, I pray that Lindsay Lane East would be a place that we, 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 don't, we don't fight with them, God, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but God, that we would root and ground ourselves in the word. And God, no matter what the church down the road says about Jesus, God, no matter what the culture around us begins to say, that we find our answers in his word and it's enough. God, help us. God, help us. We pray that today, God, we would live different because of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. God's-